Hello, and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I am your expert, your guide, your muse, Matt Arasimovich, the undisputed expert on Tipsy Tolstoy, PhD student, <laughs> Russian literature. That's me. I am in awe of, of having such yes. such a presence yes. on this podcast yes. every time. I'm going to start introducing myself incorrectly every time because we're like pretty <laughs> far into the series. So I think it would be a weird spot for a new person to come in. So it's it's OK. Right. Yeah, that's fine. Mm-hmm. So are you going to introduce yourself more incorrectly each time until you become a new person? Yes. Or OK, I, I, I like will that. become like a the... new person by the end of the series. <laughs> <laughs> the Kaiser Soze method of running a podcast. Mm-hmm. That's good. <laughs> Well, I'm Cameron Lana, and I gotta say, so it's been it's been a doozy. I just returned to my apartment at 7 a.m. this morning after like two and a half weeks, two and a half, one and a half weeks in Italy. And Matt, I have to tell you something. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the apartments we stayed in are some of the most interesting places I've ever been. Okay. I think one of these apartments, I will truly forget the faces and names of my children before I forget this experience. <laughs> okay. I, I'm like, it, this apartment was also it was a museum, also. Okay. So there were like all kinds of carnival stuff and old toys and it was already freaky because there I, the room i slept in had a bunch of like 1920s wooden carved toys mm-hmm. um in it which had their own lights there's a truscan pottery and the funniest part was a bedroom which i thankfully was not sleeping in and so you've got the room right and it's right outside the living room and so the room you walk in and there's a bed and over the bed right over where you put your head there are two full-size cherubs Oh. That are statues that are sticking out of the wall. So if you lay under them, you will be staring directly up at the feet of these, frankly, overlarge babies flying over you. Okay. Um, so that's already a lot. The person who was sleeping there hit his head when he was trying to get up on it. Did, did he Did he break it? No, they're they're solid. Okay. They might be more solid than his skull. So already, that's a lot. Did he get concussed? Secondarily, there's a shower in there. Oh. And the shower is literally two feet away from the bed. Huh. Okay. And it is completely glass with sure. like a little bit of um, opaque glass around the center. And if you look to the right, that's where the door is. So if you leave the door open, you're staring directly into the living room. And also the living room was filled with like carousel horses that for some reason had goat eyes. Hmm. Uh, so you're staring directly into goat eye horses, like five of them out in the living room. Did you sacrifice any? <laughs> no, I was. Hmm. I stayed out of that room because I would be the sacrifice. Okay, well, that would have been an adventure. Yeah, and then also there were three steps down to a very small room, and that very small room was just the toilet. And so the people that were in there took to calling it the piss dungeon. And if you, <laughs> the piss dungeon was so small that if you, if you went to the toilet, like you stood in front of the toilet, you could not pull your pants down. So you had to stand perpendicular to the toilet, pull your pants down, and then shuffle in <laughs> over front of the <laughs> toilet to pee. <laughs> and then the 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 awning, it's like to get out of the piss dungeon, was also too low. So every time they tried to leave the piss dungeon, they'd hit their heads on the way up the stairs. <laughs> and then they'd come up, and they'd be stared at by goat-eyed horses. And if they tried to leave through that room, too, there were also several bars just to the middle of the room, mm-hmm. right at forehead height. So you'd get hit on the head if you're trying to walk out. Also, the floors are incredibly creaky. And to leave the room, there's also a set of stairs, but the stairs are at irregular intervals. So you've got a step right, down, right. a long path, and then two more steps down. And also the light in the room, mm-hmm. only one light. Yep. It was at eye level and projected outward, which <laughs> blinded you as you were leaving. <laughs> I truly this is a this is this is a jigsaw trap of an apartment well you think that this is a, an old italian apartment no this is actually this was a fixer upper after it had been fixed or up uh this was intentional the person wanted this i think that's what they told me i 
<laughs> they said they wanted to blind you as, on your way down to the piss dungeon. <laughs> I this is something that happened multiple times, and like I would get flashbangs leaving. I don't know if this is an Italian tradition, but another apartment I stayed in, I first of all opening it up, it was the loudest door in the world. It sounded like the gates, like the gates of hell, rusty, cr- like grinding over themselves open. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as you stop the door, it would settle and be even louder. Mm. Then you'd step out, and there was an automatic light again at eye level, which flashbanged you. Yes. And then you, when you've tried to leave that, you'd step. There was a sudden step down. I don't know why there was a sudden step down <laughs> into the rest code. of the apartment. <laughs> it must be so like if you tried to wake up at 3 a.m to go pee you suddenly have an oral or a, like oral a-u-r-a-l assault step out get flashbanged and then fall down a stair before you could <laughs> that pee. is like the worst and also the bathroom also had a step in it halfway through so once you stepped in there you'd also stub your toe every time before you get up to the toilet wow do you feel like a stronger man coming out the other side of it i feel like this experience might have broken me honestly okay. I think they knew on some level that I latently don't take Italy seriously, and I think the apartments knew that and decided to take their revenge on me um, for doing so. Yeah. Well. Yeah. This is a podcast where <laughs> me and my good pal Cameron train apparently to be on Italian Ninja Warrior. Uh, <laughs> not really. We talk about Russian literature on the first three Fridays of every month this week. <laughs> I'm still processing what you said. Is the is the ambient kicking in? No, I'm just like I'm still processing what you said. I'm just imagining it, and it's funnier to me every time. So I'm trying not to laugh. <laughs> this week, we continue on part seven of Stalingrad by Grossman. It's been a trip, um, and by trip, I mean it has not been a very fun experience. It's been very sad. I mean, it was pretty fun up to the war part, I yeah, will say. It was, it was sad, fun. too, but... Well, but then there are small pockets of funness. Um, yeah. You know, like dunking on your daughter <laughs> for being bad at art. <laughs> <laughs> Got him. Got him. <laughs> uh, well, we're going to get even more sad today, but before we get into talking about uh, both in context and in the actual episode, Sad Things, Matt, I've got to ask you, what are you drinking today? Today, I am drinking my favorite beer that I was able to pick up over the weekend. Thankfully, uh, it's from Smiley Brothers Brewing. It is a Hefe Weizen. Yes, I don't respect other cultures. Ooh. I will continue to say it wrong. <laughs> uh, it's called Purple Line. It is a beer brewed with hibiscus, blackberry, and blueberry. It is such a good drink, and I can only get it in the summertime. And so I stocked up my fridge, but then I subsequently drank it all. It's good. <laughs> beautiful what are you drinking uh i am drinking like i said i got back to my apartment at 7 a.m this morning i also moved into the apartment literally about 24 hours before i left for italy so i've been here for less than 48 hours so i basically only have this computer set up uh, just because i had to work today so i'm doing i am drinking what i had in the fridge from when i left which is a couple of mango trulies so i'm glad that you've brought balance to the podcast by having a nice beer today you spent more time in the piss dungeon than you have in this apartment <laughs> that you're recording from. Think about that. Think about that. It feels like a grand statement about life. Doesn't we all it? spend more time in the piss dungeon than we do in our own lives. Yeah. Matt was there when I was moving because I also, at a certain point when I was moving out of my old place, I, I didn't have any access to any water. So all I had was the the hard seltzers in my, my fridge, which was a real risk. And we we're in the middle of a heat wave. So it was a real balancing app between not passing out from the heat wave and not getting pissed drunk from the hard seltzers. 
that's good that's good yeah speaking of the tipsy tolstoy piss dungeon we have a new patron cameron (laughs) (laughs) is that what i I don't i don't are we legally allowed to call the patreon that i think that's i mean it might be a crime Mm -hmm. i mean i guess if I, i mean i guess by entering the patreon they've consented to be in the piss dungeon speaking of a place where you will not have to wake up next to cherubs and goats we have a new patron speaking of a place where you can have unlimited carbonara all you want we've got a new patron speaking of of a place (laughs) i'm gonna say that once i'm trying to recount all the parts of your story but it sounds dirty when i talk about it in relation to patreon (laughs) elizabeth new patron thank you elizabeth welcome to the piss dungeon No, I'm taking that. I don't like that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't sound good, but you know what? It's going to be a new tier, so check over on patreon.com slash Tiffy Tolstoy uh, if you want to watch this podcast further degenerate. Um, or, or you can help me keep going. Either one's fine. The new Piss Dungeon tier is going to be 50 cents a month, but we pay you 50 cents, yes. but the cost is that you have to give us your phone number and we're going to send you shirtless Danny DeVito pics every day. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Yes. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about context for this episode. And actually, this is the context, even though I initially intended it only to be two parts and it's gone until part seven of this uh, series, I am actually for real going to wrap it up this time because we are going to be talking primarily about the mid-1950s for uh, for Grossman, which is slightly after Stalingrad is getting published and when he starts getting into the process of writing Life and Fate. Uh, and as we mentioned before, we do intend to cover Life and Fate in the, in the future. I won't say near future, but because Life and Fate also continues on with the same characters from this book in a drastically different manner based on <laughs> Grossman's intellectual growth, I will say, broadly, uh, in these years, um, I don't want to spoil that too much. And I also want to have something to talk about when we get there. So we're going to be talking about him getting into writing Life and Fate, and then once you pick up with Life and Fate, sometime in the future, we'll be picking up with that story again. If you want to get into the the finale, what actually happens, uh, you're more than welcome to read the last few chapters of uh, Alexandra Popoff's book, uh, Vasily Grossman in the Soviet Century. Um, we'll all be covering through today th- chapters 16 and 17, part of 17, so if you want to know what happens, read from uh, chapter 17, the novel, onto the epilogue. I mean, you should probably read the book anyways. You should. It's a, good it's a book. great book. It's very informative. It, how, without this book, how would you know things like, um, <laughs> although Boris Pasternak and Vasily Grossin apparently quite respected each other, uh, Pasternak hated Stalingrad, and uh, Grossman, for his part, hated uh, Dr. Zhivago. Hey, there you fun go. Little facts of history. Just a little fun fact of history. That's a bonus fact for you. Yeah, everybody hates each other. <laughs> So no last time we ended on Stalin's death in 1953, but we're actually going to jump back about four, uh, six years, excuse me, six years to 1947 for an important little tidbit that's going to be more important as we get towards the story of life and fate. So in 1947, Grossman and his family receive a new apartment in the outskirts of Moscow. This is what's known as the Begovaya uh, complex, and it's a series of apartments uh, that are intended for writers. So these ones are compared to most apartments in Moscow, relatively small, only two or three um, apartments high, made out of brick, uh, having relatively few families. These are not communal apartments, and the area itself is nice. It's surrounded by orchards and a couple of vegetable gardens. Pretty cool place to live. I would live there. I would live there. Uh, I don't get any orchards around where I live. No. Um, so in 
he, he moves there in 1947. In 1948, the following year, a man named Nikolai Zabolotsky moves to um, this village. And this is important, uh, Zabolotsky, because Zabolotsky is a writer who was gulagged and returns from the gulag. And although there were certain people who did return from the gulag in the Stalin era, it was pretty unusual. First of all, it was absolutely unheard of to move from the gulag back into a major city, let alone Moscow. Now, in Zabolotsky's case, this is because he had a lot of very influential friends, many of the biggest writers of the day, who wrote to, uh, had a campaign to get him rehabilitated. And although he was not rehabilitated, he was given an apartment in this Begovaya village, which is, again, like, I don't know of any other examples in this time of someone getting, you know, such a nice, like, apartment for writers who are in good standing with the party. So he's doing pretty well. And he and Grossman become pretty good friends. Grossman takes this chance to talk to him about his experience in the, uh, when he was in the Gulag. And he takes a lot of stories from his life and begins to integrate them into his, well, he just, he has them for now. He'll integrate them more into life and fate. And in this case, we actually know a lot of what, actually all of what Grossman learned from these conversations, uh, because they, the conversations would eventually be turned into a, a narrative, the story of my imprisonment. So we're able to figure, know exactly what Grossman learned. And so, for example, when we see certain scenes in life and fate, we know they're they taken almost one to one from Zabolotsky's experience. This is also important to note because um, Zabolotsky and Grossman's families grew very close, and especially Grossman and Zabolotsky's wife, Yekaterina, also grew very close. Uh, they became very good friends. This will become more relevant in the 1950s. Jumping back forward to the death of Stalin, keep in mind that at this point, this is, there was a huge anti-Semitic campaign uh, against Jews in general, but especially in the aftermath of this so-called doctor's plot. Grossman is experiencing a total pushback on Stalingrad. All of his editors, Fedeyev, Tvardovsky, they are avoiding him. Uh, uh, totally all of his publishing houses are saying, who were planning to give to publish his book, are saying, we're not going to publish it. This is dangerous. And we are going to, we want our, we want our advance back. Uh, his fellow Writers are denouncing him in meetings. They're calling him to to <laughs> denounce him to his face. Not going well for him. And things don't immediately change for, for like we said, for Grossman after Stalin's death. Um, you know, the editor of Novi Mir, Simonov, who was the person that Grossman originally submitted Stalingrad to, um, continued to write letters uh, against uh, Jewish writers in the in the discipline until the Kremlin told them to knock it off. Not because they were specifically. They were specifically against uh, the anti-Semitism of what he did, although Khrushchev seems to imply in later writings that he was, like, it was not real kosher with him, although, you know, he's writing years later and probably trying to make himself look favorable. It, it, it was something, it was, it was a campaign that the Kremlin was trying to back off from. Not, specific, not specifically that, but just generally the, the purges and fear campaign in general. Immediately after the death of Stalin, Lavrenti Beria, uh, begins to issue or is the mastermind of a lot of reforms. He issues a broad amnesty, which is, uh, although it's expected for all criminals, is only for regular criminals, not for political criminals, releasing almost a million people. He calls for reviews of many major cases, including the doctor's plot, and the irony there being that Lavrenti Beria was the mastermind in creating the evidence for the doctor's plot, uh, as well as ending a lot of projects that were undertaken by prisoners. Um, which were, this was not for humanitarian reason, these projects were all not going anywhere and had wasted many thousands to tens of thousands of lives, uh, as well as ending, ending the process of forced labor as a whole. 
if you think these were for humanitarian reasons, I would invite you to look up Laurenti Beria, and you will know immediately that he is not. This is not for, for humanitarian reasons. Uh, this was purely that the plenarium of the Central Committee did not think that these features could continue. They were not a sustainable way of running the Soviet Union. If you want a funny version of these events, uh, you can watch *The Death of Stalin*. It's a very funny movie, in no means political, in, in no means historically accurate. No, the, same thing. Movie for- <laughs> Jeffrey Tambor was there. It was a whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little weird they they allowed him back in the acting industry after that. After but you that, know, yeah, it is. Say la vie. But yeah, like in the movie, Laurenti Beria is is uh, his trial happens almost immediately, and he's shot within like the same day he's arrested. Whereas in real life, his trial happens and he's executed. I think over six months later. So the events are not not historically accurate. Nor should anything about that movie give you the indication that it was historically accurate, <laughs> except for the fact that Stalin did in fact die. Yes, yes, this is true. This was true. He did die, probably. <laughs> probably. Um, so. At this, at this, at the same time that uh, Beria is masterminding these reforms, uh, the rest of the committee also is kind of feeling threatened by this. It's very clear that Beria is positioning himself to take power. Khrushchev, at one point, for Larex, I believe it's Malakoff, that Beria has his knives out for the rest of them. In a meeting in the plenarium in in June, or maybe it's June or July, I forget the exact month. Uh, Beria is, is arrested, and the plenarium takes a, a as a whole. Get, steps into their place. Eventually, Khrushchev rises to the top. Uh, in this time, again, like we've said, the doctor spots begins being reviewed. A lot of the former campaigns that were kind of masterminded by members of the Central Committee this time are being lessened because they were not so big on the purges, and they want to step back from that. And the effect for this for Grossman is that he the the campaign against him, at least the official back and forth, is stopped. So at the suddenly things change for him. Uh, Grossman sues at this point has been suing his publisher um, saying that he does not want to return his advance to them and the judge after the death of Stalin rules in favor of Grossman which is probably not what the outcome would have been before the death of Stalin Um, and only a few months later that same publisher comes back to Grossman and says actually we would like to publish your book can we start talking about that and Fedeyev kind of comes out of hiding and starts working as a middleman to help him get this book published and within by 1954 the book is actually finally published. And this has been a, so this has been such a long experience for Grossman at this time. Keep in mind that he finished the book in around 56, 57, started trying to get published then. And now that he's actually have it published in 1954, it, it, when he gets the, the telegram, he actually does not believe it. He thinks it's a, a sort of practical joke on Fedeyev's part, but it's not. It's actually being published, and it is received extremely well, like it had been every other time previously. And I should note in the year that between um, getting the process started and getting it published, Grossman was actually able to restore a lot of his original intention with the novel. Um, it's not clear, at least from the text I was reading, how much, but he did have some time to walk back some of the other changes. This is a great time for Grossman, uh, but the next couple of years get kind of difficult. In 1952, Grossman started writing Life and Fate, and people were looking forward to seeing the next version of it. But by the time in 1954, when Stalagrad's being published, he's starting to think he wants to change this plot. Um, he's had these conversations many years ago with Zabolotsky, and in 1954, 1955, um, the Gulag returnees start coming back to Moscow because in Moscow they can challenge their case to get it dropped. So it's off their record. So you see a mass of people coming to Moscow from the Gulags. Uh, and this process is not a quick one. It's it's brogged down by my many, many bureaucrats who clearly don't care. And so there are a lot of people who have a lot of time, and, and Grossman ends up talking to a lot of people and getting a 
pretty good insight into what life was like in the various gulags in, in the east of the country. These many conversations begin to kind of alter his his thinking and he begins to significantly sour and not not sour that maybe is too simple his relationship to the idea of the ussr which although complex before but overall positive is kind of called into question as he um begins to draw more parallels between the era of hitler and the era of stalin um and that's something that is very present in his mind, in the minds of the people who's talking to. And so this is beginning to affect some of his thoughts in some ways. We'll come back to a second, that in a second, because you know by 1956 he's still not done with with this novel. He is he's working on a lot of other things, and his work is related to the purges a lot. You know, for example, in 1956 he's compiling lists of writers that were destroyed during the purges, uh, attempting to obtain for them posthumous rehabilitation, trying to get their work published, and notably, uh, he's trying to do this for Andrei Platonov, who, although he was not killed in a, in a camp or died in a camp, he did die of uh, TB in 1951 and did spend a long time in the camps. And uh, uh, Platonov was an author that Grossman was a friend of during the war and was a huge fan of. Following the war, Platonov was not popular, who's off persecuted, who's rarely published, not a popular person to be around. But when he died, Grossman did attend his funeral, was one of the few people to go and even spoke there. And he helped uh, Platonov's surviving family obtain eventually a financial assistance from the literary fund. And he would actually make a compilation of Platonov's stories, although he wouldn't, these wouldn't get published until 1958. Uh, he would write to a friend of his, Lipkin. Lipkin was the friend who gave Grossman shelter at the height of his persecution in 53. I'm reading Platonov's stories. Could you really dislike them? There's great power in Takir, third son, and Fro. I hear my friend's voice as if in a desert. It feels joyful and sad. That's a cool crossover. I, I do love the crossover episodes. <laughs> what is this, a crossover gulag episode? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so again, he's, he's doing a lot of work interviewing gulag returnees. His personal work is also turning to uh, writing about or trying to get these people published or the people who died during the, this time. And his personal life is getting weird because in 1955, um, Yekaterina Zabalatskaya um, and he uh, began an active relationship of sorts. Uh, Zabolotsky at first is totally unconcerned when he sees him getting very close because uh, Yekaterina Zabolotskaya was very faithful to him through many, many years when he went to the Gulag. She wrote a letter writing campaign to get him out. When he did get out and was staying in the East, she brought their whole family to a very remote place and worked very hard to keep them together. Um, this is after she survived the siege of Leningrad, so she's already been through a lot in her own right, and he's not worried about it. But eventually, she kind of confesses to them, no, I'm in love with Grossman. And he says, well, you can't be. And she says, well, I am. And then he, uh, long story short, ends up divorcing her. So she can sort out with Grossman. Grossman ends up leaving his family to be with uh, Yekaterina, <laughs> or Katya, as he calls her. Uh, and they begin to live together in the village in a very weird, very weird set of circumstances. In this time, Grossman didn't leave his family entirely. He went to go visit Olga uh, and Olga and his son, Pyotr, at least once a week. No records as far as we see in the book what those meetings were like. Mm. Awkward, I would bet. Sure. So it's clear in this time, based on um, some of their writings, that they were very happy but also very guilty about the circumstances of this. Zabolotsky kind of went on a self-destructive spiral in the next couple of years due to this. Um, and Grossman was had to, even though he's kind of left Olga, keep in mind they've been together for over 20 years. Um, she's been there to see his entire rise as a writer, and he, he writes that there's a still a part of her in him. Or he, not, he writes them in a, in a conversation he had with a friend of theirs. They noted that he said, even though he like feels this distant from her, she is a part of him still. 
and at the same in the same year 56 he uh his father his, his beloved father also dies so a lot of stuff is going on for him in his personal life um katya is is something that uh, yekaterina is a relationship that seemed to have been very satisfying for him they seem to have understood each other um she's going to be written into life and fate as a character for i'm not going to say who her her role is but her the character role mirrors her role in grossman's real life so you can probably guess what's going to happen there and she's described very much as like kind of a spiritual bomb almost to this character this would only last for about two years in 1958 as would take ill and as would return to take care of him and after he died she appears not to have wanted to return to grossman and grossman is like all right i guess i'll go back to olga then and he returns <laughs> and he gets back together with olga and after that he and katya appeared to have maintained a close relationship um, carries on this relationship with Olga, who did accept him back, but appeared never to have forgiven him for the two years in which he left her. Although, yeah, again, it wasn't like totally, wasn't no contact. He visited them regularly uh, when Olga's son, or Olga and his son, got married. Um, Grossman gave him a room in his apartment in Begovaya Village and eventually moved out to a different apartment. I, I think the, the not exactly saying, but I think giving his uh, her, his and her son the whole apartment. So, and in and, uh, and, and this time also, Grossman got uh, closer with his daughter Katya who at that point had been very distant from him more much more closer to her mother Galia um, Grossman's life is a very complex web in, in these in the late 50s it's it's weird for him his life is kind of a mess personally um, although he's done very well at Stalingrad he's not well published the authors who persecuted him in 53 and 54 are totally avoiding him now sorry just 53 54 was, was a good year for him um, and he is not spoken of very often in like public society. And it's this context and, and not being really acquainted with many people, except for a lot of gulag returnees, that forms the intellectual basis for the, the environment that would produce life and fate, which is overall a much more philosophical uh, and a much more dismal view of the USSR um, as a follow-up to Stalingrad. But like I said, I don't want to get into that because we'll talk about that when we get to life and fate. But for now, this is where we're going to close the story of Grossman in kind of a messy spot. In our next series, Life and Fate. <laughs> okay, let's get into the actual text itself. So this is going to be from parts 41 to 51, which is the final part of part two of this book. So like every part, we kind of rejoin at a bird's eye view of the war uh, from the more or less the, the German perspective. Um, as the things are at this point, it's the 23rd August, 1942, 4 p.m. on the dot. You know, it's German. The certain German side, it's a very exact... <laughs> very exact moment in time uh with that they the invasion for them the bombing the tanks are it's going very well um it's written there was tension at every link in the chain but everything portended success by evening it was known in berlin that stalingrad was a sea of fire that german tanks had reached the volka without meeting resistance and that fighting had begun at the tractor factory one last push it appeared and the stalingrad question would be resolved of course, we know this isn't the case, and we rejoin Lieutenant Sarkisian and his motor, motorized unit uh, north of the tractor factory. Um, it's not immediately stated, but it becomes clear over the course of this chapter that this is before the bombing has started. And, and the men are just chatting. He's Sarkisian is is having a joking conversation with subordinates Morozov and uh, Sutsin, and they're they're just talking about going to the banya, going to town, seeing a movie, and they're they're just having a good old time in the middle of war. The war is far away from them. But as they depart to go, there's several ways to go take care of some things before they can go to uh, have a good evening. Uh, it's noted, Sarkisian, Morozov, and Suitsin never did meet again. 
By early evening, Lieutenant Morozov was lying on the ground, half covered in earth, his skull smashed and his chest torn open. As for Suitsin, he was in battle for 30 hours on end. So pretending what's going to happen here immediately. We get the, the first mention of women on the battlefield here. This is true. Or or one of the first ones. Yes, a lot of the, it's the telephone operators who are operating. So they aren't immediately mentioned, but um, after this scene, the planes begin to arrive and everyone's like, are those ours? What is that? And they realize that it's a massive sea of German bombers that is overtakes their own camp as well and begins to just, just devastate everything. And I think Grossman notes that this is these are some of the first, it's not the first, but these were some of the first um, casualties of women who were associated with the military of Stalingrad. Though he doesn't call them military women. He calls them pretty young girls. No, yes, that's, yeah. <laughs> just, Sorry, yes, unintentionally sanitizing Grossman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I forget that sometimes I think we, we there's this is this is, I'm glad we have this conversation because I think unintentionally we do sanitize Grossman through our own perspective of like rephrasing things he said of like like you said pretty young girls to military women or rephrasing sometimes when he just talks about Russia to the Soviet Union as a whole when that would be more appropriate which right. I'm, I'm glad we've had those discussions in the past and, and note that even every time we say that sometimes he does actually say that but not not every time <laughs> yeah no definitely not I, I saw it and I was like yeah we got Women on women on the front, and then I was like, "Now we got pretty young girls in the front." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So after this first barrage, oh, grossy. Um, oh, oh, old grossy. Oh, I, I have a funny moment when the when the planes are approaching. Two guys are having a conversation, and one says, "And heading straight for us." Uh, referring to the planes, that's it. We're fucked. I'm sure they're not ours. The other one says, "No way." The first one says. Only the bloody bombs, they'll be ours soon enough. <laughs> so they get they get devastated in this first um in this first in, in this first wave. Um and they, they immediately begin to try to take a line, but because it was a lazy day, they were not expecting attack. They didn't even uh they weren't even digging trenches or anything, so they are completely unprepared. And from here we jump to Kremov, who's trying to write a letter to his brother, the the engine the director in Chelyabinsk. Um but it's not going well and as soon as the bombs fall it's almost a relief to him because returning to the war it's written felt as simple and natural as waking up in the morning so he joins sarkisian um and without even really speaking the two understand each other almost immediately um as the gun crews are getting set their mortars and uh, guns set up he goes from crew to crew trying to reinforce them make them feel better about what's going on making sure that control is kept um and making sure that telephone wires are being installed that lines of communication are not lost between these various groups which begins to makes a change later on the troops like we mentioned they feel something different about this battle every time the troops are mentioned uh, in relation to stalingrad it's mentioned that they feel that there's a difference they feel about this place and uh, thanks to in part to kremov's uh, efforts the uh, it's noted the simultaneous ground and air attacks had been intended to cripple soviet communication it had not succeeded. This is going to be a major part for, at least in the story, why uh, Sarkisian's unit ends up holding. Although a part of it, too, is dumb luck. As they are there waiting, they see a column of tanks and um, end up firing at them, assuming that they're, they're assuming correctly that they're German, uh, they're, they're German tanks, which is just because they happen to survive the, the, the barrage by dumb luck and see some tanks. They think they might be Soviet, think they might be German, but fire at them just to be certain. Uh, the German tank commander... He gets hit, and they they assume because they've been told they will not be here, they've been wiped out. Assumes that the Soviets must have had forward knowledge of what was going to go on, and calls a retreat because um, it's he assumes it's going to be a bloodbath because they're ready to go. And uh, uh, Grossman writes, or Grossman, the narrator, 
it's hard to say. It's it's hard to say. Normally, I always want to say the narrator, not Grisman, but in this case, it's really hard to say because <laughs> Grisman's very present in this novel. The narrator writes that in this battle, um, the Soviets could make uh, the the luck could go had been going against the Soviets for so long that in the rare moments that the luck went against the Germans, it seemed it it had an outsized effect. In this case, um, an entire line was held because a German tank commander called a retreat, not knowing how small the force was that was firing at them. Can I just say? I do not like the name Tractor Factory. <laughs> I think it's, it's simple. It's direct. It's got no pizzazz. I this would is true. have rather been at Red October. That is a better name for a factory. Like if the Soviets had played American football, like you know, Team Red October would have been their team. <laughs> yes, I think they made up for it by naming every Third Street Red October or Red <laughs> Army Street. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> I like Grossman's um, commentary on Chance as he starts to mm. as he starts to develop it. Chance only being kind of a secondary thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like it's different for sure than what we were reading. Like we we're talking a lot about Chance and Luck when we were reading Crime and Punishment. Almost Chance is like mm-hmm. a structuring force, but here Chance is just a sort of secondary thing that kind of reinforces what was already happening. Right. Like even if the Germans were to have good luck, it wouldn't really matter because mm-hmm. the tide is already shifting. Right. Well, luck is almost on the side of the Soviets because he writes that like every you know right. they've had, had Soviets had so much bad luck that the Germans' bad luck has an outsized effect. Yeah. Almost like it's yeah. not on their side, but it's it's their the Germans' bad luck is so to speak punching above their weight class. So inside the city, uh, it's written after the huge air raid, everything about the city seems strange. Everything that had changed seems strange, and everything that had not changed seemed strange. And every day now, it's written a little bit later, saw a new city, these are in the following days, growing up amid the ruins um, of the former peacetime city. This new city, a city of war, was being built by sappers, signalmen, infantrymen, artillerymen, and people's militia. So this is about five days forward. Mostovsky is going uh, around the city and he runs into Sofia Asipovna, the surgeon uh, on the street, invites her back to his home and they have a brief conversation once they return about um, what's happened. And we find out that, you know, of course, Marussia has, has in fact died. She did die when her raft was shot down by a German plane. Yeah, I thought it was ambiguous, but no. No. Um, no, she has, she, she's very, she's not... You know, Marvel Comics dead. She's dead. Alexandra and Genya have evacuated to Kazan, while Vera, Stepan, and Seryozha have stayed in Stalingrad. Sorry, you missed my favorite passage of this whole part. Oh, yes, please, go for it. Uh, the part where he says, Much has been written about the smells of meadows and forests, of autumn leaves, of young grass and fresh hay, of sea and river water, of hot dust and living bodies. But what about the smells of fire and smoke in wartime? Behind their apparent grim monotony lie many differences. The smoke from a burning pine forest, a light, scented mist floating among the tall copper trunks like a pale blue veil. And he goes on to describe the differences of the way that things smell when they're burning. And that was just, I thought that was one of the most phenomenal passages I have perhaps ever read. Total agreement. It was, it was, I, I think I wanted to write it down, but it was just so long. And It's also yeah, not like, really relevant to the plot, but I think that's even no. more f- phenomenal to take a break from wartime and go into the almost like the poetic element of smell during war. I mean, that was, right. you know, not to become a military boy here, but that was <laughs> really quite phenomenal. No, it's, I'd like it. It felt, I mean, I think a lot of times for me personally, 
not not for anyone else i don't connect very well to describing scenes mm-hmm. i i don't i something with my mind i don't visualize things very well uh but the way that grossman is writing about this here uh it seems so it's both like kind of universal and that it's a broad idea but it's it seems so personal like this is an experience that he had these are thoughts he had when he was sitting in these smells that made it feel much more viscerally alive to me than most other similar passages tend to do so i yeah i like you i was similarly struck mm-hmm. yeah this is a really good part that's really all i gotta say on it i just liked it yeah, it's good. Yeah, I, all me too. It's just, it's just good. It's just good. Some parts of the book, they're just good. Speaking of things that are not so good, right? Uh, so Sophia is inducing Mostovsky to evacuate, um, and he she refuses to, and they're kind of having this argument. Uh, Sophia agrees to evacuate his housekeeper Agrippina uh, when a soldier appears and and says that Mostovsky has been summoned to uh, the factory. And, and Sophia and Agrippina decide to go with them, deciding, reasoning that since this guy's a car, he can drop us off at the evacuation points. So even if Mostovsky will not um, will not go, at least they can get Agrippina to this um, to, to the evacuation. And as they're driving out, the city is described as being dead. Yet there was no sense even of the peace of the cemetery. Both the earth and the sky were gripped by the silent tension. Of, were gripped by the silent tension of the war. Uh, this kind of somber moment stretches as Sophia finally falls asleep and the, the ride drags on before there's a moment where Sophia wakes up and Mostovsky's looking around they're saying no this isn't right this isn't the way, right way to go and the soldier says no I know the way to go I'm a driver and they're arguing for a long time and this argument continues until finally they come to a bridge and the soldier says aha see I got us here and at that moment German soldiers step out of the dark point their guns to the car and say step out and the four are captured not great for any of them. Uh, Bolsheviks, um, Jewish surgeons, spread army soldiers. No, nope. not not a good not not good things to be been captured by the Wehrmacht. Not a great combination. Not not really. No. So we we go from here to Moscow, where keep in mind Novikov has been transferred, and he's obsessed with Stalingrad. He's waiting for orders, and the wait's killing him. It's been so long. Every time he goes down to ask what's going on, they say, "Hey." wait until you've been processed and they tell him honestly i know it's been a few it's been a week or two probably hasn't even been looked at at this point it's too soon just wait keep in mind his his talent has been that he he's able to synthesize information really well so when he's sitting and uh waiting for his for news of whether or not he's been given orders he listens at one point to two captains and it's written the two captains chatted briefly about the situation in stalingrad their understanding of the war also seemed to belong to a schoolroom so the people here um, have a very distant um, understanding of the war. And um, although Novikov has never been a frontline fighter, he's always been very close and he's always aspired to serve in the front line. So this is something he pays a lot of attention to and has almost a sense of um, not disregard, but of there are certain officers who he determines to be, you know, theoretical ones, as, as you can see by these passages. He's wandering the city and, and feels totally alone. He's like... He's staying in an apartment of a friend. He's got nothing to do, no, no reason to be there. And he's all he can think about is what's happening to the Shaposhnikov family. But after so, uh, so long, he's finally called in the middle of the night to go report to the general staff and friends the next few days speaking with them and, and a general over some of his ideas and his proposals. And they say, huh, interesting. OK, we'll think about it. And they send home and he waits. And he waits and he waits and he waits for a full week with nothing to do again. And in this time, he's, he's spending telegrams like every day to everyone he could think to figure out what's happening to the Shaposhnikovs. Um, and on nine days of waiting later, which have been interminable and killing him, he finally receives the orders. Colonel P.P. P. Novikov, 
instructed to proceed to the sector of the Urals Military District and supervise the formation of a tank corps. Finally. So he's put in for yeah. So he's put in charge of the tank corps that he's so long to create that he's been wanting to do this whole time, and he's given exactly what he it's wants. It's just the old will they or won't they? Of will they or won't they give him his own tank corps? Oh. My goodness. <laughs> Such a classic. I mean, it's, haven't we all been there? It's the backbone of like every Hallmark movie. <laughs> Just pulling leaves off, uh, you know, a flower. Will I get a tank core? Will I be reassigned to staff? Will I get a tank core? Will I be reassigned to staff? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's my. That's why I love to. Those are the Hallmark movies I love to see come around every every Thanksgiving, Christmas season. It's touching. It's for the whole family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. So in this moment, it's noted that Novikov, in his moment of success, says he loved, or writes, or reflects, he longed to speak to Zhenya straight away before he spoke to anyone else. Not only did he want to share his news, he also wanted to understand the consistency of his love, to understand that he loved her as much at a moment of proud success as at one of trial and failure. And he has like weird moments of, it's this moment where he's like, yes, I love Zhenya. And he reflects on that later that up to this moment, he couldn't quite talk about his feelings. What does he feel for her? Like, good? Bad? I don't know. And it's this moment of success where suddenly, later on, to say that he loves her feels completely natural. And this is almost a breakthrough. Um, which is, I mean, yeah, I, I'm sure that's what, you know, any given romantic partner wants to hear. I didn't know how I felt about you until I got my own tank core. And that was how I knew that we were really in love. Yeah. I have that on a, on a couple cards. <laughs> we should make those cards for our store for Valentine's Day. <laughs> um, I was I was in Babylon about you until I was assigned to Tank Corps. So I love you. Write that down. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, so he he falls into technical considerations about this, and this is consumes the next few days. And the final day before he leaves to go to the Urals to form his Tank Corps, he finally gets a letter back from Victor Strum uh, and updates Novikov and the family. And he finds out that Marussia is dead, but Genya is okay. And that brings him such a sense of relief. Yeah, this dude was like, yeah, for, uh, you know, I love this whole family. Everyone's so great. Marussia, mm, never really cared for her. <laughs> That's all right. She's not Genya. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that, that brings him um, a sense of comfort. And he feels finally that he is no longer in the back foot, just there writing reports. He's out to do something. Um, and, and the night he leaves, as Novikov left, it's written... Fedorenko, who is the general who's given him this tank corps, did not ask him if he felt up to the task. That would have seemed wrong. They both understood that Novikov now had to be up to the task. So at this point, he he continues forward. He begins to get together some um, to get together his group. He's trying to get together his old compa- his old companion uh, uh, Dugan so they can form this tank corps, uh, and then goes to the Urals. And it's written as this part closes out uh, as he gets in the plane. And Novikov, as he's getting into the plane, it's written, Say what you like about modesty, but when a powerful twin-engine plane is first placed at your disposal, when you realize that people are looking at you, when the flight mechanic comes up to you, salutes, asks if you might prefer to change seats so the sun won't be in your eyes, like it or not, you sense a tingle going up your spine. So thanks for looking up for Novikov. He made it. He did it. And in the opposite direction, um, Victor returns from Chelyabinsk to Kazan. Keep in mind that he went from Moscow, where he was uh, working on some technical things, to go to Chelyabinsk to help out uh, Krimov's brother with uh, issues with his factory, which he ex- ends up spending not just a few days, but three weeks there. Um, 
and we as is during his time there uh he throws the all of himself into this work and um his sort of personal life especially the the new knowledge of his death his mother becomes sublimated under the work uh and the trials of the factory truly one of the greatest scenes in this whole book coming up yes I, i'm interested to see yeah there's well there's yeah there's a lot coming up no not great writing great levels of mm. pettiness Oh yeah, well, I'm interested to see what I my, I may I may bring that up, but uh, please bring it up if I don't. Um, so we we find out about some of the people who um, who are there. We don't need to go into that unless you want to read it. So he goes back to Kazan and he reunites with uh, with Ludmila, and they. It's so it's it's not entirely happy. It's not well described. I will say not well not like well described like it's badly described. Like it's not described in super happy terms. Uh, it's written of their reun- of them reuniting. It was not for the sake of happiness that they needed to see each other, nor to console or be consoled. During these brief moments, Victor felt many things, everything that can be felt by a man capable of loving and of doing wrong, a man who can be overwhelmed by a powerful emotion, yet still manage to carry on with his daily life. Um, so they, they meet and they talk about the different members of the family, where, where they are, um, but they, they stay away from the topic of Marussia uh, and of Anna Semyonova, uh, Victor's mother, um, until that night. And when they, in the darkness, finally speak of it and have um, kind of stilted, I will say, conversation about it. Um, so it's, you know, not going, not going well. Their relationship is... Uh, one of time and like we said i think it's i don't remember i think it's in part five when he's reflecting on his relationship with ludmilla and it's like it's like she's a part of him she's been with him for so long but it's also something that he holds a grudge like every time she does something that he doesn't like he holds a grudge in his head and um is like just looking for reasons almost to get out of the marriage but he doesn't want to leave and it's it's an interesting situation given the context of what I said about uh, Grossman and Olga earlier on, you know, I can't say definitely. I've got no textual evidence that this is based on his own marriage, but it doesn't sound entirely unlike his own feelings about his marriage. Was Nadia back from the Kolhos? Nadia? Oh, yes, Nadia. <laughs> Please leave the part about Nadia at the Kolhos. That, I completely forget about this bit. And Nadia should be back from the Kolhos either today or tomorrow. It seems I was right. She's worked hard and it's done her good. She's in fine spirits. Just to just just stick you with it. That she was And that's right. Ludmilla to to Victor about, yes. <laughs> about her being right, about sending Nadia to the Kolhos. I want to start the pettiness counter for this book. Uh I think Victor's been doing that for years. <laughs> yes, true. It's just I love that. <laughs> Like, they just dropped this detail, like, 600 pages ago. Somebody I completely would have forgotten about. <laughs> and then they bring you back into the... And then Grossman brings you back into this marital dispute. <laughs> yeah. And you can just sense the way that she says it. It's great. It's Each character has such life in their, in their petty commentary. I felt, it's like, so uncomfortable wonderful. reading that. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so in, in the days following, uh, Victor spends more time, and this is chapter 46 on, spends more time thinking about his mother. And he, uh, and, and thinking on her, it's written, the thought of his mother, like a taproot, had entered into every aspect of his life, big or small. Probably it had always been this way, but this root that had nourished his soul since childhood had previously been elastic, yielding and transparent, and he had not noticed it, whereas now he saw it and felt it constantly, day and night. Victor was like someone seriously ill, trying to carry on as usual. The sick man still talks, works, eats, and drinks, even laughs and makes jokes, 
but everything around him has become different. Work, people's faces, the taste of bread, the smell of tobacco, even the heat of the sun. He is consumed by the, the, the death of his mother. Um, this whole chapter is him just going about his daily life, and despite everything going on, it's all about her in one way or another. And this, this continues until uh, uh, Alexandra Vladimirovna uh, comes to their home in Kazan. And uh, she, she arrives, she meets Nadia and Ludmilla. Ludmilla very suddenly, just like as soon as she enters the room, breaks the news of Victor's mother, Anna Semyonova, dying, which Ludmilla chastises her for because uh, uh, Anna Semyonova and Alexandra Vladimirovna were, were, were very friendly. And um, Alexandra is not, doesn't take the news super well, but she carries on. They, they try to do the best they can when they have dinner later on. Um, Alexandra kind of falls into reminiscence about Marussia, about Anna Semyonova, and they're unable to pull her out of it. Um, and when Victor finally comes home from the factor, um, from the factory, he kind of expects that, um, the, it's going to be awkward between that. This is going to be a reminder of his own mother, but he finds that for one reason or another, um, the presence of Alexandra Vladimirovna is actually quite, um, is quite nice. He kind of he describes her presence as being warmth in a cold winter, uh, and he speaks to her late into the night. And in the morning, he says, I, "You know, I, I would like to. I would like to uh, want to speak more with you when I get back." And when he's at the factory, uh, Ludmila finds uh, some things that uh, Alexandra had taken, and I think this is a very tender passage. I want to, I want to bring it up, and she finds some of the things that uh, her mother's taken all the way across the country to Kazan. There was a sheet sheaf. There was a sheaf of old letters wrapped in newspaper that was falling apart at the folds. Ludmilla glanced quickly through the yellowing pages, recognizing her father's compressed, slanting hand and the handwriting of her sisters when they were little. She saw a page from one of Tolia's school exercise books, covered in his straight, even handwriting. She saw a postcard from her mother-in-law and two letters from Nadia. Scattered among all these letters were family photographs. It was strange and painful to look at these faces she knew so well. Some of these people were no longer alive. Others had been scattered far and wide. But here they were, all together all together. But here they all were, all gathered together. Ludmilla felt a surge of tenderness and gratitude towards her mother, whose presence of mind had saved those old letters and photographs from the fire, and who had always had room in her heart for her loved ones, bringing together the dead she never forgot and the living she was so ready to help. Her mother's love was as precious, as simple, and as necessary as a chunk of aging bread. It's like tender socialist realism. Very tender socialist realism. It's like, how could you say the nicest thing about a piece of bread? <laughs> tender core socialist realism tender core. um <laughs> so uh, yeah Al alexander's presence is a, a bomb very much to ludmilla and to to victor she's kind of this maternal presence which both of them have well ludmilla has forgotten that she misses and Al and and victor is all too aware that he misses and in the in the light of of things going so well um and when he's in the factory the next day speaking of socialist realism he's looking at a cathode the light of it and sees the promise of a newer better future one that he can be a part of and one that he only needs more resources in order to create very <laughs> socialist realist yes okay so at this point we are 680 something pages in this book and you, you know what that means time to introduce a new character <laughs> oh thank god i was getting bored with all the old ones <laughs> no there's such a such a small collection to choose from i was just starting uh, <laughs> to be able to keep track of them <laughs> luckily again it's a family story so we're only bringing in more family members um and we join ivan novikov i don't remember if we talked about novikov before but i'm novikov, just gonna like, say i read this for probably 20 pages 
Yeah. And then realized I was thinking about the wrong Novikov and then had to go back and reread it. <laughs> that it was it was the military Novikov the whole time? Yeah, I was like, who is this guy? I was like, I don't think these are characteristics of the Novikov. I know. <laughs> That's funny. I had the same mistake, but in a different direction. I feel like for a moment, I thought we were talking about Kremov's brother. And I was like, I thought he was a director. Why is he in such poor conditions? <laughs> Before I realized I, I've been switching. I, this has been a problem. On my notes, I just keep, I like, I'll have Kremov written down and I have it crossed out and I write Novikov above or vice versa all the yeah, time. Yeah. I don't know why these are the two characters I keep mixing up, but I do. And I'm mixing up their brothers too. Yeah, happens to the best of us. Yeah. Okay, so Novikov is walking back. Uh, he's he's. I don't think it's mentioned where he is, but he's out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, he's walking home to his barracks, and he's thinking about his work history. And Ivan Novikov is has truly done it all. He's worked in workshops as a pony driver, working underground, working underground again, working around the world. Um, and even though his the people who grew up with, even his own brother, even people who've trained, have moved up much further into the administrative apparatus than he ever has, um, no one's ever looked down on him for it because he's a worker. And in fact, uh, Griffin writes, he almost has, he is the one who almost has a sense of condescension to them, although it's only ever a hint and a smile in his mirth uh, that he is really doing the real work and the rest of them are, you know, just administrators. It's written about him that Yvonne was a born worker and he knew it. His greed for work, his profound curiosity for labor of every kind had not diminished over the years. He would get carried away thinking how interesting it would be to try his hand as a copper smelter or as an engineer or an ongoing steamer or go to eastern Siberia and work on the coal mines. I mean, I get it. You know, I really, when we were in Russia, I really wanted to drop out of school and go work on a fishing ship in Alaska. I understand that tendency. Yeah, we were there for a minute. Yeah, we were, we were, we were in the headspace. We could have, we could have, this podcast could be happening from an Alaskan <laughs> crab ship. That would have been great. <laughs> Um, and luckily for Ivan, um, he's a married woman, Irina, who shared his passion, and they've been traveling, doing work in various places all over the USSR, uh, until recently when they gave birth to a daughter, um, and it, she is very sickly, and it's written, as you know, happened for many parents and a sickly child, their, their, their love for her becomes almost desperate, and she becomes like the main you know, feature of their lives. Uh, you know, Ivan is coming home. It's, it's early in the morning. He's worked all night, and his wife is getting ready to go out and teach lessons. She says, hey, you got to take a break. You can't keep working. And he's like, no, I got to go to the pit. After that, I got to keep working. She kind of laughs and says, all right, you know, whatever. Uh, and she, she leaves. And I, I, don't, I didn't take specific notes. I just wrote, turns out Ivan is a wife guy here. But, <laughs> my, <laughs> uh, but what I mean by that is, like, this is... Usually when he like talks about a woman being attractive, it's just like, oh, she's a pretty young woman. But this one, it's very much no- noted that she is older and she looks older. But it's just something about her character that Yvonne is just like so, like as she's walking away, she's thinking about her past, about meeting her when they were young and her reading her text to him. And she's very intellectual. Um, and everything about her drive and her knowledge is like, just he's like so happy to be with her, which is very, very sweet. Mm-hmm. Tender core. Dairy Tendercore. Um, so he has some tea and plays with his daughter Masha, and he goes to the pit office taking Masha along because uh, they they don't have a they don't have a daycare open at the time. And reads a newspaper report about his own uh, his own attachments progress, and he works in the coal mines. Um, although he notes that the article fails to mention that his team is very difficult. In fact, I'll uh, forgets one member, but I can Skya altogether. Um, he actually meets her on the way and has a brief conversation about her son. She's trying to get him into a boarding school um, where he's going to get at least three meals a day, but the director of their, their mine is refusing to even consider it. And Braganskaya um, is, has come here very di- under very difficult circumstances. Her husband, an economist, was killed in the front lines, so she's lost a lot before this evacuation, um, and she's got an air of sadness around her. 
Although Ivan only expects to be at the office briefly, he, when he arrives, he finds many of the directors of industry, of local industry there, including some military members. And so he has to very, he's embarrassed, but he has to bring his daughter into this meeting because he's got no time. Uh, and all the directors look at him and is like, why are you, is your daughter here? And he has to explain to them that the nursery is closed due to a measles outbreak and it's been closed for nine days, which they're all surprised at. So there's like, no, it's, it's a little, I mean, it's less subtle in this part, but Crispin's definitely getting in his digs against about the out of touch factory directors. Take that. And so when they're, as Yazov, the mine director, begins to talk, uh, Ivan, it's noted, dislikes this man a lot. Um, he thinks back to when they originally, this, this camp they set up was a retreat, actually, uh, was basically, there are many refugees who were being brought here. Um, and when all the workers who were being brought here are asking, hey, where are our belongings? Where are we going to stay? Yazov is like, well, we got to march a couple miles out that way. Um, we're going to stop getting here eventually. And, you know, you got to sacrifice essentially for the USSR. But it's noted that Yazov was, has, of course, has all his nice stuff. And there's a car carrying all of his belongings. When they get to the barracks, finally, his barrack is already fully furnished and he's got stoves. And even to this point, a year onward, the rest of them don't even have heating. So he's yeah, understandably holding that against Yazov. This has real cement vibes. This whole like passage, he really does. I mean, this yeah. whole thing is just cement, but Grossman writing it, mm-hmm. so it's a lot more cynical. Yeah, it is. Um, so even Yazov, it's impossible to get a meeting with him. And even if you do, he just says, "Why are you bothering me with this? This is not my business, and this is really affecting the morale of the workers." Because even small things is essential to the health of the worker. That Grossman tells you various. It's like talking about what's good for workers. It's I mean, in a way, that feels a lot more relevant than cement does, but it's very Grossman cement. Yeah. So the party directors are arguing, the military ones say they need the coal now, and the minor directors say, hey, look, you gave us a plan, we're fulfilling the plan, we can give you the coal by the end of the year, and the director, the military guys say, that's not enough, we need it right now, and the other guys are like, I don't know what to tell you, you told us what to do, and we're doing that, and we can't change that now, because that's not how this works. And then finally, one of the, one of the, um, says, hey, look, we're saying it's your fault, it's my fault, whatever. Guilt and blame are for public prosecutors. The only thing now is the only plan is the war. And we should reorganize our labor plan around that goal as much as we can. And he turns to Yvonne and asks him what he thinks. And this is, I like this passage a lot. And this is why this is Grossman's cement, not Gladkov's. In the course of only a second, Ivan Novikov remembered what, seems like, what seemed like dozens of important things he wanted to say. He wanted to give vent to his anger with Yazov. How could he talk? How could he speak about Bruginskaya with such feeling? He refused to help place her son in a boarding school. How could he tell his workers that they must remain in unheated barracks while installing such fine stoves in his own apartment? Ivan wanted to say that the workers' rations were inadequate, that many of them had to live in damp dugouts, and by the end of the shift, some could hardly stand upright. He wanted to describe the young soldier he had seen buried at a small station in the Urals. He had died in the hospital train, been carried out on a stretcher, and been buried in the frozen ground. He had looked like a fledgling. Yvonne wanted to talk about his love for his daughter and how she kept falling ill here, unable to cope with the Ural's climate. He wanted to say how his father had lain dying, hoping that Pyotr, his youngest son, would be able to come and see him one last time. But Pyotr had been unable to obtain leave from his unit. He hadn't been able to say goodbye to his parents' grave. And now it was being trampled on by Germans. His heart was beating fast. He had a lot to say, and these men would listen to him. Quietly, slowly, he said, I think we can do it. Give us our new plan. This is such a scene of just, it's, it's such an agonizing scene. Yeah. I, I, yeah. That's all I have to say about it. It's just, yeah. It was very in- intense. It was actually, I don't know, it was a little bit of a nail biter. Yeah. So this, it, I mean, this whole part, this whole part is, it's really like the, I, I'd say this has actually, like, I know a lot of this book has a sense of tension, but this, have, this 
park has a very present sense of tension. Like every moment I'm expecting something to go wrong, which I mean, they're coal miners. Every moment something can go wrong when they're in this. Yes. So it's conveyed extremely well. I got to say it did. It did make me message you and say, doesn't it make you kind of want to become a coal miner? <laughs> um, classic Cameron and Matt content. Classic. Reading about horrible things and being like, kind of want to do it. Just to try. <laughs> I'm curious. So after this, you pick up with Yvonne's story after they give him the new plan. They're heading down to the mines. We're getting a lot of his thought process, the, the different ways that the people are handling the stress of going to the mines, um, you know, how men and women deal with it, uh, the agitation of his own crew, the heat and the difficulty of the work. He's thinking back to his past, working in other places. Um, two of his people in his, in his crew, Divyatkin and Latkov, are constantly trying to annoy each other uh, and are constantly trying to needle Yvonne about his promises to you know, open up a new scene by the end of the following month. But you know, Yvonne doesn't give in to it. So they, they get near the scene and they're joined by the boars, Lopatina and Vikentiev, um, and they prepare to make a borehole. And right in the moment before they start to make the borehole to let out gases, because there's lots of gases that are, that are being, this is what's going to make it safe for them to drill down there, or to start to blast in, in, in the drill holes. Um, they all reflect as they're about to start about the danger of this, and he notes that if they're like, we get hit by a blast that's too strong, that's not just going to dent our shield, that could take one of us out. Uh, and um, the the newest member, Braginskaya, asks if this job is dangerous. And Yvonne looks at her, remembers a great deal of danger of death in working this job, and they kind of, as they're staying at each other, she understands that this is a very stupid question. Uh, and he says, don't worry about it. And she kind of, uh, you know, without without saying it, understands that this this is in fact extremely dangerous for them and, to be down here you know if it makes them feel any better they're all dying of lung cancer in like 15 20 years anyways <laughs> yeah yeah little does you know that masha does not have does not have uh constantly ill because of the urals weather it's because of the environment they're in yeah, sure <laughs> um so they begin to bore and as they're boring this is very difficult um i mean they're drilling through rock and at this point, something happened that everyone present, astonished by what they had witnessed, tried later to explain in their own way. Gentle, courteous Ivan Novikov was transformed. This man who rarely raised his voice, who affably laughed off all Latkov's attempts to needle him, who always stood meekly in line both in the food store and when he was waiting to be taken up in the cage at the end of the shift, who quietly took his little daughter for walks on the settlement's single mud, mud street, who was happy if his white who was happy if his wife had to go out to check the washing on washing line for the clothes or to sit outside the front door and peel potatoes. This man was transfigured. His bright eyes darkened, his movements, usually calm and slow, became swift and sharp. Even his quiet voice became brusque and commanding. And they begin to look to compare him in their various ways, calling him a pagan god, and Lopatina actually compares him specifically to Yamelian Pugachev. Call back. Call to, back. <laughs> call back to the well not I guess not not intentional callback, but hey, there's Pugachev. We did it. Our boy, uh, and like Pugachev in um, in the Captain's Daughter, I am similarly transfixed by Ivan Novikov. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Seems like a cool dude. Yeah. Um, and this is like this is a real nail biting scene. I've, up to this point, this has all been uh, been describing how dangerous even just drilling this could be because they could just hit the wrong spot and the gas could kill whoever's boring. Um, and as we're going through it. You begin to hear more about everyone's lives, their thought process, their worries, their fears, their futures, their regrets. And man, the tension just grows. I, every, when I was reading this, I was like, oh, they're all about to die. I was like, please this don't is... kill them off. Please don't kill them off. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but luckily for them, they, the borehole does not kill them. It, it opens up and, uh, and they proceed with their work. Um, and I, 
all their all the, all the writing about their individual lives kind of crescendos into them all a feeling that although they all are imperfect people, there's something that connects them about their work. And there's a strange force that, that this connecting power that subordinates them to Ivan Novikov. And, you know, he is the best in them and he brings out the best in them. And this, and even despite the loss of individual freedom, they're all better for it. So, you know, back to Gladkov, or back to Grossman Cement. So finally, as they leave, it's been a long time, they're, they're going up in the cage a party secretary, Motorin, pulls, pulls them all aside and says, hey, I need to tell you something. And they're all so tired. They say, dude, can't can wait. It's been so long. We've been literally underground in the dark doing very dangerous work for so many hours. Uh, and he says, no, this is important. And he has a speech ready to give to them. But it, the words just start coming out. He's got lots of very technical language. and It just doesn't feel right. And finally, he tells them the story of when his father, a minor, had been fired from his job and they'd been kicked out of their apartment and they couldn't stay in the street because the police told them, you can't stay here anymore. You, aren't, you don't have a legal right to be. And he says, but I had nowhere to go. We had nowhere to go. And he says, do you understand what I'm saying? And they seem to understand. And he tells them that the Wehrmacht has entered Stalingrad and that street-to-street fighting has begun. And that's the end of part two of Stalingrad. You know, in terms of pacing, I thought we'd be farther along. Yeah, I, I kind of assumed in the book about Stalingrad, the siege of Stalingrad, by 700 pages in, we'd probably be at the siege. But I see where I went wrong on that, actually. <laughs> I, 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 thought we'd, I thought we'd be on the wrap-up, getting towards the wrap-up. I feel like we're no. still on the climb, you know? We just we just got introduced to a whole new character. <laughs> yeah, right. Like we did this whole like we were moving along on the war front, and then it was like, okay, well, we're gonna spend like forty pages talking about underground mining, which I'm like, okay, awesome. Um, <laughs> but we gotta finish the book, Vasily. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it is an incredible chapter. The tension there is very present, but I, I do see your point. Yeah, no, it's not a criticism or anything. I just, as a general thought, in the way that I, I expect books to be structured. Right. You know, I was a fool, like you said, for, yes. for expecting this to go as I planned. But. but it really, I mean, it does speak to, again, Grossman's intent is to write a book, not really about the war, but about the people of it. So we're, we're back bouncing all around from the people, the people fighting the front lines, the people being captured because their driver took a wrong turn, the people in the coal mines, the people who are uh, refugees in other areas. Um, truly, we're getting a broad scope of what it's like over so many different lives and so many different, I mean, Novikov is, you know, his is very, his story is very triumphant. He's the kind of a, like the gentle, he's, he's like, again, like, I don't want to overextend the metaphor with, with Cement, but I, I think it's interesting that in Cement, our, you know, our protagonist is not a sensitive person, really. He's mm-hmm. just like nonstop, like rah, rah, I gotta go. Uh, you know, I'd like to see my wife, that'd be nice, but she's doing her own thing and he eventually accepts that, you know, his daughter doesn't really matter, but it would be nice to see her. He did, the only important thing is the factory and Yvonne is like a version of that, but he's in a version that has much more interiority, um, where he, he, he's just like, he just loves his wife. He just like, look, likes looking at her and thinking about, man, I'm just so lucky to have be married to this woman. I just like, he likes seeing the wrinkles around her eyes. And, you know, despite looking old, this is like a sense of intense youthfulness about the way she just interacts with the world. And he loves his daughter, just like loves taking her to work and carrying her around. And she, you know, doesn't want to be separate from him. Um, and although she's, you know, she's a child. So he's trying to reach as a kick in the paper. Um, but he's also just like, we can, we can overachieve on these plans, I uh, know I'll be I'll be the best of us. He's the model worker. He's he's 
I don't know, he's like a Soviet. He's I know I know Grossman like writes specifically against the idea of Superman, but this is like I don't like this is the Soviet realist hero, but with a great deal of interiority that you don't see in cement. Yeah. I can't in any way say that this is like a thought in his mind at all, but I, I can't help but see the parallels. I I mean, I'm sure it was. I'm sure he... <laughs> it's it's kind of easy with um, Russian and Soviet literature to know that people have read certain books and that it would have in some way influenced them. Mm-hmm. Just because if you're a writer at this time, you 100% have read the canonical at this point socialist realist text. Right. And Cement would have been one of them. So it's pretty easy to say that he would have read it. Yeah. Unless I am wildly wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, At least reading the biography of his life, I I couldn't tell you that you are wildly wildly wrong. I'd say I'm in the ballpark. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I do think it's, it's interesting that, again, like we're ending on that the Wehrmacht has entered Stalingrad, but even though we are at such a momentous moment, the flattening of the city, the troops entering the actual... Uh, the streets itself, the tanks entering it, it's a very slow part. I mean, it's like it's very much focusing on, of course, there are the like, quote unquote exciting moments of Mostovsky being, um, Mostovsky, Sofia, and Agrippina, and the soldier being captured. But for the most part, it's them bickering in the car. It's uh, Victor and reflecting Victor and, um, I keep wanting to say Olga, Victor and Ludmilla's relationship um, and his loss as mother of just Novikov being bored out of his mind and terrified for Zhenya and Ivan just going about his day, just mining. <laughs> it's, it's very slow. It's very dull, which I guess for a lot of people, if you're not actively in the front line, your life is, can be kind of dull, can be kind of slow, especially in such a bureaucratic society. Yeah. I think that's kind of the, my understanding of where we've come to so far in the book is that we're not really looking at strategic military victory so much as something like internal that you're supposed to kind of connect or see across all these characters that would lead to victory. So that kind of makes sense as to why it would be structured that way, because there's not one sort of thing, right? The Soviets to win. It's sort of this Mm -hmm. uh, almost something you can't put your finger. I mean, you can put your finger on it, but it's not a, a physical thing per se. Right. It's not some grand general, you know, commanding troops in such a, victorious fashion right it is very much i think it's very instructive at the moment when when everyone in uh, novikov ivan novikov's crew is thinking about how he's making them all better by being working as a group it's kind of like it, it, i don't uh, tying it back to in the last part we have when i want to say it's, it's the german it's the it's the german um lieutenant or senior lieutenant who's back home visiting his his friends and family and he goes to see an old friend of his and you know the friend kind of reminisces and he's working at a factory and says you know uh you know the volk the people are everything and you are nothing and he says well why am i nothing am, am i not the volk you know what, what am i not part of this are we not volk who is the volk um, mm-hmm. you know kind of making fun of the idea of you know saying the volk can be something but the volk is not a concept the volk is people and i, I can't help but i kind of draw, draw this parallel here that grossman's trying to kind of do an alternative version of that and saying, yes, uh, the labor is all about you being collective together, but it's not about, you know, a, a, a theoretical other. It's about you, the individual, about you uh, sublimating some freedom so that you can be a better person for it by, you know, working together, not, a, you know, a theoretical idea of Volk. Right. It's really not very theoretical at all, actually. No. Very, very, con- literally concrete mm-hmm. of them 
needing to work together in order to create this. Mm-hmm. Going back to Victor, Victor's mother, Anya, Anna Semyonova, I think that's, um, it, I, don't, I don't have too much to say about it precisely, but it's such, it, the, the heartbreak in the scene is difficult, I will say. It's, it's very, very well written. And again, considering that this is pulled one-to-one from his own life. Yeah, it was a pretty striking chapter, I thought. Yeah, I think kind of as we're, the more we talk about it, I think you're right, the way that Grossman describes different senses. He really pulled, the way that you mentioned that quote about him, about the way that things don't taste the same um, after his mother dies and the way that, that you know, kind of integrates into his worldview. It's pretty pretty striking. It's one thing to describe, you know, how you feel, uh, but it's another way to, I don't know. I just, I really like that part. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's such a, uh, a striking, too, just because of the various relationships, dynamics that he's portraying, especially once he comes back. And um, Ludmilla and Victor have both suffered great personal tragedy for Ludmilla, her sister, uh, for Victor, his mother. And the fact that they're in direct, they're directly next to each other provides a great contrast. And two people who are having such similar crises and grief and it like is very indicative of their relationship in the way that they're basically unable to really address that with each other. Mm-hmm. They can't talk about it until like the dark hours of the night. And even then it's kind of in like hush whisper and more almost just like talking, just saying it happened really. And they don't connect at all. But when, you know, Alexandra comes at the same time, she's like, she's also tries to engage with that. She's kind of shell shocked and Ludmilla is also unable to, and it's, it's like a bunch of people who you, you see the consistency and that Ludmilla and, and Victor, that the way that they're very emotionally reserved, like, is is put onto uh, Alexandra. But at the same time, because she's so different from them, uh, she puts out a very different energy, and they both like open up. And Ludmilla, when she's reading those letters, and she feels such love and tenderness towards her mother, and Victor, very actively like trying to spend more time with Alexandra because that it feels like such a bomb to him. Um, I, I, it's I, the the nuances of how he's portraying the family is is. I, I don't know. It's 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 great. I like it. I, lo- I love seeing it. Yeah, I think having that many characters kind of allows him to take a sort of winding approach to kind of the similarities and differences. And when you're trying to navigate it, it can feel almost like a maze at times. Mm-hmm. And boy, dare I say, Cameron, would you consider it a sort of labyrinth? Would you? <laughs> do you think? A labyrinth of plots, of perhaps. Pl- of plots, perhaps, I think. <laughs> I do think. I do think I think that could be it. I think that could be, <laughs> <laughs> which is just again. I I know we talk about Grossman deliberately mimicking Tolstoy's style, but it's just like, you know, you really gotta you know, tip your proverbial cap to him because it's not easy to do. Because if you could do it, more people would. Um, but the way that he still does that sort of labyrinth of plots thing, where he's using the different plot lines to sort of investigate these deeper moral or ethical issues, it is. It's pretty serious stuff. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm really excited. I know this is probably not, not in the near future for us, but I'm so excited to get into Life and Fate because um, Life and Fate is really when uh, he's, at this point, when when he really gets to the late part of Life and Fate, he's no longer thinking he's going to publish this, although he does try to his detriment. Um, he's really, towards the end, really writing for the desk drawer and the kind of underlying philosophical debates, which up to this point are also like kind of written towards an eye towards publishing, just he, he throws that all away and just really goes whole hog into just using this kind of labyrinth of plots in different circumstances to create those discussions, not only in their own sections, but discussions of plot lines with each other in this labyrinth 
which I think um, I'm super excited to get into when that becomes like the primary motivation rather than as opposed to an underlying thing that he's engaging with in his larger story about trying to tell you what the war was like. Yeah, I'm excited. I know we probably have at least another year or so before we'll be able to return to life and fate, but man, I can't wait. I'm so excited for it. And in the meantime, uh, you know, we can really follow through with the, the, the war and peace comparisons. Perhaps. Just perhaps. Perhaps so. Maybe, maybe so. Um, this part was, compared to like part six, is a lot less philosophical, so I think we have a lot less to say, more so just commenting on it. Um, is there any, I think I really covered all the stuff I kind of want to talk about. Is there any other things that you wanted to, to mention? I don't want to get too into it because we are running long, um, but there's a whole passage about the beauty of inertia, which was hmm. a really interesting passage when he's talking about um, when they're down in the coal mines and they're starting to work and the way that the workers overcome the inertia of rest and the way that he says the, all these people know, love and appreciate the beauty of these fierce movements that give birth to the rhythm, the power and the music of their work. Such a vibrant way to describe working and in the way that he considers beauty as sort of this, so I'm trying to read my own handwriting because I have notes from like a week ago that I was like scrolling <laughs> through and I was like, what did I write? Um, I thought I said beauty as a motivating uh, productive force. No, motivating <laughs> productive force. Motivating, I don't think is word. Um, you can make one. I'm going to make one. Um, and <laughs> I, I don't really have this worked out and I don't think I will for a long time, but I would, if I was going to write something about this book one of the things that i would probably write about is grossman's conception of beauty i think it is so incredibly nuanced and i would like to i would like to return to that labyrinth yeah if we want and we can cut this out of the podcast i think this really uh, his idea of beauty really comes to its apotheosis in his short story the sistine madonna so if we want like a short easy one to cover after we finish this <laughs> keep going grossman we could do that yeah we could i mean yeah, I just think it's interesting because it's really the reversal of cement where in a lot of ways, like aesthetics and beauty are sort of sublimated to production, um, whereas here, beauty actually drives production. It's above or at least on the same level of importance as production, which is not something that you would associate with the Soviet Union, I don't think. No, no. that's. I mean, that's why it's, it's so interesting. It's such a such an incredibly nuanced... Um, just piece of work, just take on this, the, on this era. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mm -hmm. of course, it, I, as, as it gets later on, it, it gets less, I would say nuanced, a bit more didactic, not in a bad way, just because I think, especially once he's starting to write for the desk drawer, he's getting way more into yeah. his own personal views yeah. and his own personal frustrations and, um, and cynicism, which are very interesting, worthwhile in their own ways. But this too, as, as intended for the public, you know, I, I see often on lists that people say, that oh life and fate is the greatest book of the war that you've never read you've got to read this and increasingly i'm thinking that that should be taken off list and they you cannot you cannot take this apart life and fate apart from stalingrad i yeah. really think that the like, themes of the second one cannot be understood unless you are understanding them in relation to the first one like the labyrinth of plots just doesn't hit the same as it as it does without this context and without these you know subtle without understanding his subtle relationship to these broader more commonly harped upon themes in in literature and in, in the ussr at the time and before I just think it's a bit of a hard pitch for most people that are not into russian lit already this it's is just, true it's such a big book i mean I, i'm kind of 
accustomed to it at this point. Um, but still, even for me, I pick it up and I'm like, oh my god, here we go again. <laughs> yeah, I know you need to read this big thousand page book, but if you consider you should read two thousand page books, so we yes. can understand them better. C- consider you are a nerd unless you read them both. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, it just I've, it's tough, but man, the depth of character you get from this much time with them, mm-hmm. just love it. Yeah. Unfortunately, we have three more parts. Yeah, we got we got a lot more to go here. Yeah, um, going. So, unless there's anything major you want to cover, that was it. Beauty. That was it. Okay. So we just finished Stalingrad Part Seven, and I'm gonna I'm gonna let the cat out of the bag and say, hey, next time we're doing Stalingrad Part Eight. But Matt, what chapters are we covering? And now, confusingly, part <laughs> we'll be doing in Part Three of the actual book. Yeah. So our part that we're doing next in part three we're gonna go one through 17 if you would like to read along you may i will not make you we're not this time. not we don't have the power to yet we don't have the power to yet but eventually <laughs> <laughs> with time if all goes according to plan if all goes according to plan down in the piss dungeon down in the piss dungeon <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> <laughs> Cameron, I gotta, I gotta ask you now that we've mm-hmm. approached the, the end. On, yep. on a scale of one to Yeltsin, how drunk are you from your mango seltzer? I have had, I've had actually two mango seltzers in the passion fruit. Um, and maybe this is an after effect of the fact that I've been drinking wine like nonstop in Italy. So cheap, like a, a liter of wine, depending on the restaurants, like could be like 10 euros. Oh, I love um, <laughs> um it's not hitting i'm probably like a four, which is still a pretty good, but mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, for like three three seltzers in relatively quick succession could be stronger but you know not bad not bad how about you where are you standing about, about a six or a seven i was nice. higher up and then i declined because i finished my drink like halfway through sure yeah as we tend to do these are long episodes yeah i think these are over on the whole soap more sober ones because normally it's like four, we do like 50 minute episodes and halfway through we stop to get drinks and these ones we're just like doing an hour and a half and we just don't stop <laughs> I remember, like, there's a few that are, like, 37, 38 minutes where we're like, ah, it's a little bit short, but we'll just release it. I mean, this is, like, significantly longer than the average episode. (laughs) I think we will eventually reel it in because we'll have to, but it's fun for now. It's fun. I mean, it's kind of hard. I mean, with so so much going on, we might might continue a little bit through the, well, might continue a little bit in the future, but for other, for non-100-page ones, we'll definitely, I'm sure we'll be reeling it in a bit more. Yeah. Give Tipsy Tolstoy a break. <laughs> I need time to clean the dungeon. <laughs> Speaking of the dungeon, we got a lot of patrons that we want to thank for supporting this disaster of a podcast. We've got Jeff, Madeline, and Janice, Daniel, Darren, Daniel, Jack, Paige, Jesse, Lou, Irini, Brandon, Allison, Cole, Elise, Mysterious Donor Dude, Joanne, Yitza, Alex, Stephanie, Julie, Eli, Caitlin, Brett, Isaac, Austin, Zachary, Pack, Rob, Maya, Amanda, Blake, Shannon, Jay, and Elizabeth. We got we got a lot of we got a lot of patrons now. We do, we do indeed. We are a big deal, I think. <laughs> so they tell me. <laughs> I'm plugging Patreon. That's what I'm doing. Sorry, I got sidetracked. I was scrolling no, up and down the list. I could make sure I got everybody now. Um, <laughs> you're good. If you want to support us, you you can. You know, my 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 inclination is if you've listened to like seven parts of Stalingrad, you are a yeah. prime candidate to support us over on patreon.com slash tipsy tolstoy. 
grad school does not pay very well and podcasting it simply is not free anymore <laughs> so if you want to keep this show running if you want to go if instead of 10 parts for life and fate if you want a hundred you gotta get on over to patreon you just you gotta or if you want to stop us from doing 100 parts, if you want to stop and- <laughs> doing 100 parts then you also got to get over there and let us know <laughs> unless you tell me i have free reign over scheduling <laughs> we finish the book we don't we go into the sistine madonna we start going through his short stories one by one <laughs> you cannot escape <laughs> <laughs> Be that as it may, whatever side you're on in this upcoming war of the pro Grossmans <laughs> versus the anti Grossman, the music used in this episode was So Eat March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast, on Twitter at Tipsy Tolstoy, or you can join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon.